The battle for the Supreme Court is in full swing. The nomination of Brett Kavanaugh continues to careen with political posturing, credible accusations, credible denials, and nothing that the confirmation process was designed to be. The Supreme Court of the United States of America has become political instead of judicial. Who's to blame and how to restore order on this week's edition of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Some have suggested that members of Congress should wear patches, like NASCAR drivers, to show which companies and which lobbyists are sponsoring them. Members of the Supreme Court may have to soon follow suit and shed their black robes for blue robes or for red robes as a result of the complete political process that has encompassed the court nomination process. The founders established and both political parties profess to concur and they love to tout that the Supreme Court should be an unbiased, uncompromised and uninhibited arbitrator of the law and the Constitution. Sadly, the root cause of all that is politicized falls squarely on the shoulders of members of Congress. Let me tell you what I mean. Members of both the House and the Senate discovered long years ago, decades ago really, that it's easier to get reelected and raise money if your actions as a lawmaker are less transparent. So transparency is an issue. Then they discovered that by ceding their lawmaking authority to the executive branch, they would also be free from that real troubling process called accountability, especially during the re-election campaign. So this is what we see. Today we see sweeping bills with broad and enticing titles are passed in the middle of the night, stuffed to the brim with unrelated spending. This is why we are over $20 trillion in debt as a nation. But worse still is that many of these bills also confer the implementation, regulatory, and enforcement authority to executive branch agencies. Abdicating power and authority to agencies absolves members of Congress from any kind of accountability when the laws are implemented and they prove to be unpopular or harmful to their constituents. So, for example, Congress loves to pass a big-sounding bill like, We Shall Have Clean Air. And everyone cheers. We pass the We Shall Have Clean Air Bill. But within that bill, it says that we hereby confer all of the power to decide what clean air is and what it is not, and all the regulatory burdens that every company will have to function on, and what the penalties will be for not help, helping have clean air, and what they can do in terms of enforcement to the agencies. And this is what happens next. When a constituent is suddenly burdened or harmed by that particular law, the we shall have clean air law, they go to their member of Congress and they complain. And the member of Congress shrugs their shoulders and says, hey, I just voted for clean air. If you have a problem, go see the agency. And when they go to the agency, the agency says, we don't really care. Because you can't fire us, you can't vote us out. We're part of the bureaucracy in the executive branch. And so you can see how this absolves Congress from accountability and from transparency. 
Now, you may be asking yourself, what in the world does that have to do with the Supreme Court of the United States of America? Everything. And here's why. Because Congress has rendered itself almost completely irrelevant on so many levels because they're not passing anything, they're not doing anything, they're not being accountable for anything. They just do these big spending bills in the middle of the night so nobody can see and nobody can know and nobody can hold them accountable. Because of that, the political battles have all shifted to the court. The court is where the biggest issues of the day are being relegated for decision. So the the byproduct of congressional abdication of their own power and their own authority is that special interests see a Supreme Court nomination as the ultimate political battle. It's a political battle with far-reaching ramifications to their particular cause or their party of choice. So, for example, when Obamacare was ran through Congress with not a single Republican vote, and scores of blank pages in the bill with that lovely catch-all abdication language to be determined by Health and Human Services inserted, the law was destined to go to the courts. And to the courts it went. And ultimately it worked its way through, and when Obamacare ultimately reached the Supreme Court, the political pressure, the political pressure to avoid the very appearance of the court striking down President Obama's signature policy achievement was enormous. The political heat was so intense that Chief Justice John Roberts, who in his own confirmation hearing, I might add, passionately, fervently stated that he was to be a referee and not a rule maker. He melted under the political heat. Justice Roberts literally rewrote the law twice twice in order to save it. Now, this is just one example of what happens when Congress doesn't do its job. It closes its actions so that nobody can see what really happened, and then they abdicate authority. And we end up in the court, and so the political battle ends up in the court. That's the problem. Now, the political right deserves equal blame in all of this, especially when it comes to the politics of the Supreme Court. Uh, For many years, the answer to any, any social or regulatory policy defeat for the right was to file a lawsuit. Uh, During the 2016 campaign, I regularly made the case that if Hillary Clinton were to win the White House and appoint liberal judges to the Supreme Court, perhaps it would compel conservatives to focus their energy on winning hearts and minds in the public square based on principles instead of always running and turning to the comfortable confines of the court to solve the problem. Now, in today's world, the Democrats can cry politics, for sure. They can cry politics as President Obama's nominee Merrick Garland never received a vote. And it was political. No question, it was a calculation uh, by leadership in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, uh, and they have a right to complain. Republicans can point to manufactured Spartacus moments by some of the members of the Judiciary Committee. They can also look at the weaponization of alleged victims and allegations of assault from 36 years ago or more. Now, to be clear, victims must be heard and the accused must be given opportunity to state their story. That's a debate for a separate conversation. The point today is that the politics of it all, 
the politics of all of this does irreparable damage to individuals, to the institution of the court, and to the republic. Now, it's also interesting to note that political pressure is also being applied to every aspect of our society. Political pressure has never been greater. Uh, In fact, it's political pressure that's used to stop inconvenient speech or speech that you disagree with on college campuses. Political heat has been used to stop religious organizations from expressing their views beyond the confines of home and houses of worship. And now that same political pressure is being applied to stop the court from ruling objectively. And this is the key. Pressure being applied to stop the court from ruling objectively. The threat of political pressure and personal destruction is the landing place the nation has descended to from a very slippery slope of congressional abdication of power. So again, this all ties back to Congress not doing their job and relinquishing power to the executive branch so that the political battles are not fought where they're supposed to be fought, on the floor of the House and the floor of the Senate and in front of the American people. And they're being relegated to the courts, so the court becomes more and more political. Uh, New York Times columnist Ross Dathout, if you haven't uh, followed him at all, he's always a good read. Uh, He took to Twitter yesterday uh, about what the Democrats would gain from all of the political shenanigans of the confirmation process. Uh, He tweeted that uh, the purely political scenario for the Democrats would be, it'd be great for their base. It would galvanize, energize, motivate their base for the short run and for the midterms. It would also provide fodder, important fodder, he noted, to delegitimize Brett Kavanaugh. So that if Brett Kavanaugh were to rule against something like Roe or another social issue, Uh, It would be a a useful means to apply pressure to him or to delegitimize him. It would also put immense pressure on John Roberts. We already talked about how he melted from the political heat in the Obamacare decision, that he rewrote the law. So, again, this would apply that the court should be careful in ruling against some of these liberal causes, And in a few years, it would also apply to the conservative causes. Uh, In other words, more political pressure will be applied to the court. And so here's the challenge. Since Congress is no longer really interested in engaging in the politics of policymaking through transparent debate, through an amendment process, through compromise and debate, and ultimately accountability, because our politicians are unwilling to do that, nominees to the court are going to be forced to behave more like political candidates than they are judges. Uh, I love this today. Uh, Jeff Greenfield uh, posited this in, uh, in Politico. He said this, quote, How far this path from the majesty of the courthouse to the fever swamps of politics goes is unclear. We, will we see future nominees to the Supreme Court appear at rallies? With the president who nominated them? Will nominees appear personally? Will they be on TV? Will they have one of those approve this message on a TV commercial urging their confirmation process? And he added that there are way too many ads already urging justices' confirmation on the cable news networks. So can you imagine that? Or or perhaps they're 
now new red robes or blue robes will also need NASCAR-style patches so that the public can identify who the justices are representing on the bench. And imagine this. Uh, Imagine we could even have a this Supreme Court question brought to you today by insert sponsoring company here. Now, if that were the rule, uh, Justice Thomas would be a really bad investment since uh, he went over a decade sitting on the bench and never asked a question. So he might be a little difficult one to uh, pin down on that. But what would happen if instead, if judges judged and lawmakers made law? I know I'm getting into the the crazy town conversation here, but that is where we are. What would happen? Imagine if our judges were not making law, they were just judging and assessing and applying the Constitution and the rule of law. What would happen if our lawmakers really made law instead of just doing big omnibus spending packages in the middle of the night uh, that nobody can see or understand or be held accountable for? So what would happen? If, If that happened, I could see a return to something pretty interesting that also has a Utah tie. Uh, Justice George Sutherland is the only Utahn to occupy a seat on the Supreme Court. Here's something interesting. On the morning of September 5th, 1922, President Warren Harding nominated George Sutherland to the Supreme Court. He did that in the morning. George Sutherland was a thousand plus miles away in England giving a speech. He was on a lecture tour throughout the British Isles. But on that same day, September 5th, 1922, before the sun set, before the Senate adjourned for the day, they unanimously voted by voice vote to confirm George Sutherland to the United States Supreme Court. I think we could get back to something like that, or at least a little closer to that, if we had lawmakers making law and judges judging. So hopefully we can get there. Hopefully we'll return to a Congress that will take its abdicated lawmaking authority back and return it to regular order, to common sense, and what is now seemingly very uncommon in the United States Senate, decency. It's the harder road, uh, but it leads to a better place, better place for the court, better place for Congress, and definitely a better place for the country. Therefore, what? Now we get to the difficult part. Therefore, what? (laughs) After going through the challenges of a Supreme Court and a Supreme Court nomination process that has become so political and lawmakers who are no longer making laws who are just abdicating so it's easier for them to be reelected, the question for all of us is, okay, That's frustrating. That's discouraging. That might even be depressing today. But what am I going to do about it? Sitting in my house, sitting in my job, driving in traffic today, what can I do to get Congress to do its job so that the court can do their job, so the executive branch can do their job, and the republic can function the way it was designed? It may be one of those where you feel a little hopeless or a little helpless in terms of anything that you can do, Uh, but there's much that you can do because A lot of this is a we-the-people problem. It is not just a politician's problem. 
It's a we the people problem. So the first thing you need to do today, today is get registered to vote day. So get registered to vote. If you're in the state of Utah, real easy, vote.utah.gov. And there are sites like that around the country. So wherever you're listening today, make sure rolling into a very important midterm, regardless of whether you're on the left or the right or the center or somewhere in between, vote. Make your voice heard and make sure you're ready to vote come November. The other thing that we must do as we the people in order to get the branches of government functioning functioning the way they should is to hold them accountable. For too long, we're giving them a, a pass. It, it's sort of the, I used to call this the, the Dennis Rodman syndrome. Everybody hated Dennis Rodman unless he was your Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was a dirty, cheap shot player, but everybody knew If he was on your team, he'd get you 19 rebounds a game and a few steals, and he would wreak havoc on the best offensive player on your opponent's team. Uh, Case in point, the Chicago Bulls hated Dennis Rodman when Dennis Rodman was on the Detroit Pistons. They detested everything about him. But then he became a Chicago Bull, and suddenly he was their Dennis Rodman. And they loved those rebounds. They loved those steals. They loved that tenacious defense. And so everything was okay. And far too often we're doing that with our politicians. Our members of Congress were were saying how awful Congress is and how horrible the swamp is, but I'm going to still vote for my representative because I know who they are. And so we have to be careful there that we're not giving a, a pass to our members of Congress. We have to hold them accountable to keep the promises they make uh, in order to move things forward. I think we also have to make sure going into the midterms that we are asking hard questions of candidates, that we're not giving them easy passes, uh, that we have to ask them a few simple things. Could you ask that candidate for office, would they make a promise to you as a constituent that they would never vote for a bill that they hadn't read themselves, they hadn't actually gone through and known what was in the bill? That would force lawmakers to be lawmakers to actually read the legislation, to know what's in a bill, to know what the ramifications are, and to make sure you also get a commitment while you're at it that they will not sign on to these big sweeping bills with fancy titles that abdicate all of the power and authority to carry it out to a government agency. That's the problem. We have to hold people accountable for that. And that requires us as we the people to be informed, to be in the loop. It's not hard And it doesn't take a lot of time. You don't have to be a political geek to follow your member of Congress to see how they vote and then to go check it out. And what are the key points of that legislation? Why? Why did they vote no on that? There may have been a really good reason. Why did they vote yes? Were they doing it to go along with their political party? Or was there a principle at stake? Was there a better policy option available that they didn't choose to pursue? So we have to expect more. We also have to start expecting of members of Congress that they legislate by topic and and do regular order. Instead of lumping all of these things into a massive thousand-page bills that no one reads, just do one, one subject at a time, one topic at a time. There's actually a process they're supposed to go through, especially when it comes to funding the government. 13 appropriations bills, one for education, one for the military, one for health and human services. It's not rocket science. But when we lump them all together, we continue to move forward and we get this big $20 trillion in debt. 
And remember, you cannot get $20 trillion in debt through conflict. Conflict is not the problem. It's collusion. It's collusion from both sides of the aisle. And that's what leads to, again, Congress abdicating their job so things end up in the courts. The last thing I think we need to do as we the people is to expect more, not less. Sometimes politicians will say, well, it's just it's really hard or we're just we're too divided as a country. And what they're doing is they're they're making sure that they can't be held accountable. You see, because if a politician can convince each of us that we're too divided as a nation to deal with immigration or health care or infrastructure, as long as we the people believe that, if we buy in that we're too divided to deal with it, that gives Congress an excuse to do nothing. And it gives the president of either political party the ability to do whatever they want by executive order. And what does that result in? More politics in the court, because that's where everything will end up in the end. And so we just have to expect more. If they say it's difficult, say, good, that's why we sent you there. If they say we're too divided, say, no, we're really not. Uh, The far left and the far right of the country, yeah, they're pretty divided. But the vast majority of the people in this country, those of you who are listening and those of you who are going out working today, taking care of your family, making a difference in your community, most of the country is center-left or center-right, and we're not that divided. And so don't accept or settle for less. Expect more. We have to expect more. And if we expect more, Congress will do their job because they'll be transparent and they'll be accountable. And we, the people, will hold them accountable. And if we get Congress in the right place, asserting their proper authority as lawmakers— The executive branch can do its job, and the judicial branch, particularly the Supreme Court of the United States of America, can do its job, which is to judge, to judge based on the law and the Constitution, not a blue jersey, not a red jersey, not a Democrat, not a Republican, principles. That's where we have to land. Remember, after the story is told, after the principles been presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today, and be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging on Therefore What?